Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Grand Round series. Uh, this is a real, real special one, uh, one that I look forward to every year. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, Paul and I was just uh, chatting before, uh, before you joined our meeting that a year ago, we actually had uh, the, the eighth Paul Dworkin pediatric chair lecture, and, and that was in the, in the Gilman Auditorium. I think it was, and it was Lisa Honeyfield, it was the, one of the last ones that we had uh, in, uh, in real time and live, uh, live production as opposed to here in the studio. Uh, it just reminiscing of you know, how much time has passed and all the things have taken place. And uh, so that's just, uh, you know, just to give you a sense of where we are today. Uh, before I introduce the lecture, I just want to make one announcement, uh, which is related to the lecture in some way. We have the inaugural Diversity, Equity, and, Inclu and Inclusion Symposium, which will be hosted on April 9th uh, at between 8 and 11.30 a.m. It's live and on demand. You get three AME Category 1 CME credits. Uh, no registration fee is required and will be um, the uh, donations, and you certainly can make them. They will go to the Hartford Promise and rise for higher education for low-income families and students. And it will feature Dr. Priya Pulwani, Dr. Christine Fink, and the Reverend Carolyn Wilkins. And I think you will find that a, to be a very powerful uh, session. Again, April 9th, uh, Friday, April 9th, we'll circulate the information to you so you can join us uh, between 8 and 11.30 for a good cause and a great topic. So um, now welcome to, uh, to our uh, pediatric uh, Grand Rounds at the 9th Paul Dworkin pediatric lecture, if you can move to the, uh, the next slide, uh, Steve. Uh, so uh, now this is Paul Dworkin before his chairmanship some time ago. Um, and uh, that's not him right now. It was supposed to be a, an animated uh, little cartoon that obviously did, did not work. So I'm sorry that the, the cartoon is not working, but um, this is Paul uh, a few years ago. If you go to the next slide, Steve, then um, on March 1st, 2013, so this is now uh, nine years ago, we're beginning the nine years, uh, Paul came to my office and uh, with Marty Gavin at the time, and they, they asked me to be the, the interim chair of the department. And if you can uh, go, just click the next slide, Steve. Um, this is him so, uh, laughing, thumbs up, and I'm saying, what did I do? I think little did I know what it really meant to be to be a chair, it's been a formidable ride, but you know, Paul did it for 15 years, which is really, uh, you know, just incredible. And uh, you know, when I this yearly lecture was instituted right around the time that I became chair in 2013 to honor Paul's more than three decades of distinguished service in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. Uh, the lecture celebrates 15 years uh, of his formidable stewardship and exemplary accomplishments as chairman of the Department of Pediatrics and as Physician-in-Chief at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Uh, the lecture is intended to remind us of, of Paul's role as a caring healthcare provider, as a teacher, as a mentor, uh, but most importantly, uh, as an innovative and world-class leader in the field of children's optimal health and development. Um, Paul, if you go to the next slide, Steve. Uh, Paul is now uh, Executive uh, Vice President of the Office of Community Child Health at Connecticut Children's. Uh, his vision led to the also the creation of Help Me Grow, a national initiative that all of you know about that promotes early detection of children at risk for development and behavioral problems and their linkage to programs and services. And you can see some of the programs that are associated with the office here it has been a formidable ride, uh, which actually started in 2012 and has gone on to be a nationally, and I would venture to say internationally recognized program, which really brings 
the name of Connecticut Children's in the Department of Pediatrics to places that it hadn't been before. So he is really just a formidable individual. Um, if you can go to the next slide also, Steve. And again, this is the Help Me Grow National Forum. Of course, you know, you look at this now and you cringe a little bit. And you say, uh, well, you can see Paul there in the middle and say, where are the masks? Well, this is from before the pandemic. This is hopefully we can get back to, you know, meetings like this where we can uh, share just the normal, normal bacteria and normal influenza viruses as opposed to the coronavirus. Uh, and, uh, you know, just as the, the, this is from their meeting, which means we, we can create change. And Paul certainly has done that. Uh, prior speakers uh, that uh, from this lecture have been really uh, cast of international stars, including the, Dr. Neil Schechter, who was the inaugural speaker, Bob Englander, Frank Oberle, uh, Lee Pachter, Arvin Gard, Jack, uh, Jack Shunkoff, uh, Kelly Kelleher, and last year Lisa Honeyfield, and just to, and Paul chooses. That's the thing he has. You know, he chooses the, the the speakers for his honorary lecture, which is wonderful, and he does a fantastic job. And I think today you will you will be equally impressed by the speaker. So, uh, Paul, thank you very much for all that you do for, for us, for on behalf of Connecticut Children's the Department of Pediatrics. Uh, you are certainly a role model that I follow daily. Uh, always impressed with how eloquent you are, how elegant you are, and, and the just the strength of academics that you bring to uh, child health and development uh, in an innovative way. Uh, so I'm going to ask now that you please introduce our distinguished speaker, Dr. Renee Boynton-Jarrett, who's joining us remotely from Boston. Paul. Thank you very much, Juan, and good morning, everyone. I'm so grateful for the honor of this annual lectureship. And as Juan has stated, I this is the sole activity I can think of in which I can exercise full discretion in decision-making. And I jealously guard this opportunity to maintain my full authority. My parameters for speaker selection are actually pretty straightforward. Number one, I extend invitations to friends and colleagues whom I most admire and respect. And number two, I invite individuals who have the greatest capacity to inspire and inform our work. And as Juan has suggested, we have no limitations based on geography. Lisa Honigfeld last year, a local speaker, uh, Frank Oberclade came to us from Melbourne, Australia and the Royal Children's Hospital there. This year's speaker, Renee Boynton-Jarrett, meets and in fact exceeds my parameters. Renee's academic credentials are impeccable, an undergraduate degree from Princeton, a master's and doctorate in science, specifically in social epidemiology from Harvard, a medical degree from Yale, and her pediatric residency at Johns Hopkins. Since 2007, she has been a faculty member in the Department of Pediatrics of the Boston University School of Medicine, and has progressed to a senior rank. She's currently associate professor in that department and an attending clinician in the pediatric primary care clinic there. Her awards are too numerous to mention, but I would point out that they speak eloquently to her humanism, her professionalism, her compassion, her expertise, and her bountiful activities, NIH study sections, board of, direction, board of directors, community service, uh, speak to her generosity of spirit. Uh, Renee also has an impressive record of academic productivity, grants and publications, but really personal reflections 
have informed my selection. She is advancing the legacy of a preeminent Department of Pediatrics at BU uh, Boston Medical Center, the former Boston City Hospital. This is the Department of Pediatrics that was the birthplace of Reach Out and Read, Healthy Steps for Young Children, the Medical Legal Partnership Program, and she's continuing that legacy with her place-based work, uh, including her leadership of Vital Village, which is really a prototype for our place-based initiatives and has informed and inspired our efforts locally at the state level and nationally. I've had the privilege of co-authoring manuscripts with Renee, and co-participating in various forums and learning from her insights and wisdom. Renee was a priority for this lecture before recent events that have only enhanced the importance of her visit with us. We have just celebrated, sadly, the one-year anniversary of the death of Ahmad Arbery. Uh, shortly thereafter, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd and the deaths of others have only amplified the imperatives of our work addressing structural and systemic racism. The pandemic has grossly exposed the racial inequities in healthcare and society. I have no doubt that this invitation and Renee's visit with us will directly strengthen and inform our actions in support of diversity, equity, and inclusion and our work in OCCH in Pathways to Action. I want to express appreciation to Renee for her acceptance of this invitation. I regret our lack of ability to host a physical visit, but I certainly look forward to this Grand Rounds and a day of meaningful learning, introspection, and inspiration. Please join me, although we can't do this through jointly clapping and welcoming uh, Dr. Renee Boynton-Jarrett. Renee. Good morning, everyone. I am honored to be with you all today, especially on this important occasion to celebrate the legacy and the incredible work that is ongoing of Dr. Paul Dworkin. I'm gonna to talk to you today about restoring dignity, addressing structural racism, childhood adversities, and child health by reimagining community partnerships. I don't have any disclosures except for one. One of the leaders of the civil rights movement, Bayard Rustin, um, who actually was the formative lead behind planning the March on Washington said that we need in every community, a group of angelic troublemakers. And I am honored to be a part of this lecture today to honor Dr. Dworkin, who I believe is one of those angelic troublemakers. In 2007, he published um, his uh, remarks from the presidential address from the Society for Behavioral and Developmental Pediatrics. And in that, he cited a confession. 
he cited that in the beginning of the movement to establish developmental and behavioral pediatrics as a discipline, he was skeptical. He had some early skepticism in part because he truly valued the role that every generalist um, could play. And he talks about coming full circle to truly appreciate and acknowledge um, what the discipline had to offer. Now, I know you all might know Dr. Dworkin as well, or if not better than I, but I looked back on this and I thought, I wonder if he had been playing a bit of a trick on us because he decided to take Help Me Grow and grow that to be a national systems level movement to promote optimal development and thriving of children across the country. And I wonder in thinking about that, maybe he just decided to dream and expand and grow bigger in terms of thinking about the importance of focusing on healthy development for all aspects of our society, all aspects of early childhood systems. And, you know, I'm sure you've all heard this said by Paul, it is all about the system. If we're going to be successful in supporting families and ensuring their children's health and development, we must engage all sectors that are so critically important to family support. So I'd like to put a caveat on that confession because I think it was slightly modified. But throughout my comments today, I'll be reflecting on the incredible contributions that Dr. Dworkin has given to us thinking about systems, thinking about child development being everywhere, and the importance of listening to parents and caregivers. Three things that I think are consistent throughout his work. Today, I'll be talking a bit about root causes of childhood adversities and ways in which our research and data can exacerbate inequities. I'll be thinking a little bit with you all about structural and integrity and how do we actually bring integrity to anti-racist practices and competencies. And finally, I'll be talking about reimagining community partnerships. So root causes. On Friday, January 29th, 2021, just a few weeks ago, a 911 call was made in Rochester, New York by a parent. Nine-year-old child was having a mental health crisis and expressing suicidal ideation. The police arrived at the home. The child was uh, frightened and walked out to the street. The caregiver requests repeatedly mental health support for her child. The police intervention is the child was handcuffed. Uh, six officers were involved. The child refused to put her feet into the police vehicle um, and repeatedly asked for her father. Um, the officers threatened and then ultimately pepper sprayed her in the face. What is the impact for the child, the family, and the larger community when a mental health crisis is met with this type of intervention? It is not surprising that the child was a Black nine-year-old girl. When we think about what the hope is for meeting the needs, the developmental, the behavioral, and the mental health and physical health needs of every child. How do we respond to those needs with dignity, with integrity, and one that respects and appreciates 
the child's humanity. So think about the impact and where it is coming from. I want to talk about adultification. This is the criminalization of black children and children of color. Black girls are often assumed to be older and more mature, beginning at the age of five, black boys beginning at the age of 10. They're also um, assumed to be less innocent. So they lose the legal protections that are afforded children and their behavior is often criminalized. In fact, in this case, the officer, one of the officers asked the child to stop behaving as a child. And the nine-year-old said to him, I am a child. This leads to racist policies around training, data collection, reporting, and treatment and disciplinary practices within the judicial system. So if someone is not viewed as a child or afforded the protections of a child, there's a constant negotiation to um, criminalize their behavior as well as um, um, give them higher sentences and greater disciplinary practices. This doesn't just exist within our criminal and law enforcement system. We also see this in our educational practices and systems in terms of school suspensions and preschool expulsions and discipline. We also see it in our medical care and delivery in terms of assumptions about pain and pain tolerance. Although we appreciate that race is a social construct, our behaviors often respond to it as if they were biological aspects. This has, can have an indirect and direct both indirect and direct contact have a long-term mental and physical health outcomes. It can influence and undermine parent-child relationships. So witnessing a parent being um, assaulted or brutalized by police um, um, can be uh, frightening um, and traumatizing for children. It can also build a distrustment for law enforcement. Um, seeing race-related events online, unarmed um, black and people, people of color being shot can cause depression, post-traumatic distress disorder um, in children, in adolescents, and in adults. And then we see um, a decline in GPA and a lapse in attendance that is associated with geography and closeness to the incidents. The lifetime risk of being killed by police for black boys and men is one in a thousand. One in a thousand. It's a staggering difference. Um, and as you can see here in this figure, it is significantly higher than um, in comparison to other groups um, in the United States. When we look at the use of police force, it is one of the leading causes of death in black men ages 25 to 29, just under cancer. Um, in, in pediatrics, um, uh, we, we address public health concerns and infectious diseases that have the same lifetime risk um, of, of death much more aggressively uh, than uh, we address the use of police force and its association with mortality, uh, premature mortality for black boys and men. We need to start talking about racialized trauma and we need to start talking about the differential impact of this trauma on communities of color and particularly children of color. Now, you might think that the numbers that I just shared would speak for themselves. We would respond with great distress and urgency to these numbers. 
But Heatley and colleagues at Stanford University did a little test of the extent to which people being informed about racial disparities leads to different behaviors or advocacy to eliminate those disparities. So when people were informed of racial disparities in executions of prisoners, 52% strongly favored the death penalty compared to 36% among the group that wasn't informed of racial disparities. When people were informed that the black prison population of California was 45%, 27% signed a petition um, to lessen the severity of California's three strike law. When they were informed the black prison population was 25% of the entire population of prisoners, 52% signed the law. Again, the opposite of what we would expect when people in New York City were informed that the black prison population was 60% versus 40%, 12% signed a petition to end New York's stop and frisk policy compared to 33%. Now the participants in these studies were Caucasian. These were tests with um, made up numbers, but it, it goes without saying that just sharing information about inequities as numbers alone, does the numbers don't speak for themselves. Frantz Fanon said, sometimes people hold a core belief that is very strong. When they're presented with evidence that works against that belief, the new evidence cannot be accepted. What happens when inequities are presented without context? The first thing that can happen is people can naturalize them. Well. There are always inequities among Black people. These differences cannot be changed. They'll simply assume that racial ethnic disparities, almost sharing that information just reinforces an expectation that these are just naturalized differences. The second thought is that they're just intractable. There's nothing we can do to change them. Why should we devote any attention to understanding why they exist? They're so ubiquitous that they're just believed to be endemic and people no longer respond with alarm or concern. Or there is simply lack of interest. So those who have power and have the ability to make a change do not feel a personal stake in the racial and ethnic disparities that they see. Angela Davis said, in a racist society, it's not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. And this conveyor belt here at the, at, the, at the airport is a model, a metaphor that Dr. Beverly Tatum has used, that racist behavior is walking very fast on the conveyor belt in the direction the belt is moving. Anti-racist behavior would be to walk actively in the opposite direction that the conveyor belt is moving. But if you are simply standing on the conveyor belt, you are participating um, in uh, the racist thoughts and actions and policies within the society. You actively have to work against it. Dr. Kamara Jones takes this metaphor even further. And she says, it's not enough to just walk um, against the grain on the conveyor belt. You also have to think about what's making the conveyor belt move. What is the mechanism? How is it powered? What is the system that is keeping it in place? 
So I'd like to introduce a concept that I like to call structural integrity. This is asking a series of staged questions about inequities. How is inequity constructed? How is it operationalized? How is it being perpetuated? And asking these questions in a systematic way to actually achieve anti-racist practices. So do we naturalize um, what we see or do we attempt to always contextualize inequities in the greater context to try to help understand the roots? Do we always look for structures and institutions. We often measure race or ethnicity at an individual level, thereby attributing the differences we see to individuals. Can we draw attention to structures, institutions, and systems that may be unmeasured in a systematic way? All of you are familiar with adverse childhood experiences and the and the foundational studies um, out of the CDC and Kaiser Permanente that looked at the long shadow that early childhood adversities cast on, on growth and development, health and well-being, and ultimate life chances over the life course. And while those studies did not include measures of racial discrimination, community violence, bullying, um, or even factors such as poverty that we know are strong social determinants of health, um, future studies have included and broadened and prior studies had as well. Um, and we, we are beginning to get a, a greater grasp on how we talk about adversities in a holistic way. We see them as contributors to population attributable risk to major causes of morbidity and mortality consistently. Um, the ACEs study and survey have been replicated in the behavioral risk factor survey um, between 2009 and 2018 in most states with very similar findings to the initial ACEs study. One thing that has been significant is in exploring the use of ACEs data by states um, in the BRFSS, we've looked at several additional factors. So when we think about the long shadow that childhood adversities cast on health and well-being over the life courses, yes, it is true. Adverse childhood experiences are prevalent and they are across all sociodemographic groups. This is important and needed information and demystifying the idea that ACEs only happen to lower socioeconomic groups or communities of color. However, they have found that there is differential risk for any group that is socially marginalized by race, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, language, um, their risk for ACEs is higher. So any group that is socially marginalized experiences differential risk for adverse childhood experiences. And we have to begin to describe the social conditions and the structural conditions that contribute to that differential risk and ultimately lead to health, education, economic, and social inequities. So when we look at our two Americas, um, as Raj Chetty describes, looking at white and black children who grew up in identical neighborhoods, went to identical schools, had two parent households that had the same earnings. We can see that 
um, at the age of 35, the red across the country shows that for black men, their likelihood of earning less than their parents is strong. And for white men, their likelihood of earning more than their parents is strong. Although these groups grew up in the same, um, same uh, otherwise matched households and schools and neighborhoods um, on all other factors. And in diving more deep into this data, they've um, uncovered several areas where this pattern does not follow. So in communities where there was a higher prevalence of, of black men, just a higher number, not necessarily within your family, higher prevalence of black men within the community. Boys tended, black boys tended to do better. And in communities that had more fair and equitable policing practices and relationships with law enforcement, black men tended to do better. So this is getting at some of the social and structural conditions we need to better understand to understand adversities. Next, we need to look at the United States in comparison to peer institutions. The light blue is showing the percent um, gross domestic product percentage spent um, um, for each institution on health, for each, um, for each country on health care. And the dark blue is showing the percentage spent on social care. The U.S. spends 16% of GDP on health and 9% on social care. That is the exact opposite of all of our peer countries that spend double the amount on social care and half of the amount on health care. This also speaks to our earlier understanding of how our mental health crises, behavioral crises, um, how are we meeting the social needs um, and health needs of our society? Um, and what systems do we have in place and that have we invested in to promote well-being? When we think about the social determinants of health, racism is included. There are many factors included, but we often do not think about a social determinant that is highly prevalent, um, particularly when we're thinking about differences and how othering occurs in society, such as social isolation. So discrimination, prejudicial attitudes are the roots of social exclusion. Social exclusions create area deprivation, poor opportunity structures, disconnected services and silos. There's lower social cohesion, distrust and violence within community, and ultimately weaker social support and networks and access to information. This all contributes to poor physical health, mental health, and social mobility for families, as well as children. So the roots of social isolation, which is a key determinant of health, also are associated with practices that grow social exclusion, such as discrimination and racism. When we think about how we grow social connectivity, we think about factors that allow us to be more inclusive, collaborative, and embrace differences, that promote cross-sector synergies, that lead to flourishing communities with higher levels of efficacy and social cohesion, thriving families, and ultimately social and emotional well-being. So it's important for us to take a structural look 
we really are always seeing just the tip of the iceberg when we're measuring events and adversities that happen in the lives of children. We can only react to those events. At the water level, we can see patterns and trends of differences across neighborhoods, but that only allows us to anticipate what we may need to do. We have to go deeper. We have to begin to understand the underlying structures that are leading and supporting these patterns and trends and ultimately the events so that we can design new systems. And ultimately we have to ask what is keeping the water cold? What are the mental models? What are our understanding of dignity that leads to our treatment, our structures and the differential outcomes? So we also have to transform our mental models if we want to see longstanding change. You know, the pyramid of hate really begins at the very foundation with prejudicial attitudes that lead to social exclusion um, and a, the, the levels of aggressive aggression carry forward. So this is important for us to keep in mind. At the same time, it's important for us to remember the very factors that can divide us are also fundamental to our healing. We heal in community and we heal in relationship. So when we think about the ways in which our social systems and structures are impacting um, our access to healing, our access to well-being, and the opportunity for children to grow and thrive. I like to think of the aquarium where you're watching these incredible fish swim and behave and you seem to just imagine this is just how social life is occurring. And then you remember that there's actually a transparent glass that keeps things ordered within that aquarium. And we really have to practice putting both of our hands on that glass, that social structure. We have to identify it, define it, and we have to build our competency for seeing what is often invisible, what is often normative, what is often overlooked. <laughs> I want to take a moment to talk about our understanding of resilience. This is um, a statue of John Henry, uh, one of our great folklore tales of John Henry who beat the machine by diving with just his, with just his hammer, just his axe uh, through the mountainside. You know, and that's often how we think of resilience as an individual characteristic. When we see this group of preschoolers, do we think about resilience as a community characteristic, something that is grown and maintained and supported through community? So the concept of John Henryism, uh, determination to succeed despite the odds, um, has been studied um, by Sherman James and others. And it's shown that, yes, that idea of individual resilience and success um, uh, can lead to some success and very high active coping behaviors, but it also can lead to higher social, psychosocial stress and risk for hypertension. We've seen this also in studies of resilient youth. Resilient youth who went on to go from hardships to college had higher obesity, blood pressure, and stress biomarkers than 
their fluent, more fluent peers, but they also had higher biomarkers than their low income peers who did not attend college. So we see that this concept of individual active coping can come at a biological and um, um, biological cost. So when we think about resilience, I like to think about it three domains, the ability to withstand, adapt and recover from adversities. This idea of withstanding adversities. If you can grow up here, you can grow up anywhere. Our traditional thoughts about resilience, withstanding challenges, grit, strength, and character. But ways in which we actually know that that can be modified is through a strong sense of collective identity, your cultural, racial, and community identity, social supports, and community assets. So ways in which we support the development of assets, resources, and supports um, actually is the way in which individuals can grow in that dimension of resilience. When we think about the ability to recover from adversities that have been experienced, we actually know that that is best improved by developing safe, healthy, and prosperous communities with many opportunities. Opportunities to reestablish routines, opportunities to learn new things, opportunities to gain access to arts and other cultural forms um, to help uh, stimulate forms of expression having caregivers in the community that understand trauma, develop leaders and advocacy is all essential. Having a shared sense of purpose, economic and educational opportunities promote this. And then finally, when we think about adapting to resilience, the ability to adapt, this is really where we have to reclaim our North Star vision um, and begin to really go after systems level barriers. Do we really want children to simply adapt to hardships? Or do we want to remove and eliminate those hardships? How do we create healing spaces and leverage social and political capital to address that? Bruce Perry says the more healthy relationships a child has, the more likely he will be to recover from trauma and thrive. We all know this to be true, that relationships are agents of change and the most powerful therapy is human love. So when we're thinking about modifiable resist, resilience factors, parenting, social support, maternal mental health, self-care skills and routines and an understanding of trauma have all been demonstrated factors that can be modified and modify resilience in children. In his paper with Dr. Patcher, Dr. Lee Patcher, Paul Dworkin, and Lee Wright, the clinician who elicits parents' opinions during data gathering should be aware that the general question, how do you think your child is developing, is value-laden, and that parents' expectations for their children's development will influence their opinions and their concerns. Findings from this study emphasize the importance of interpreting parents' opinions and concerns about their children's development within the context of their cultural beliefs and expectations. In the work that I've had the opportunity to do with Dr. Dworkin, we have talked about the importance of listening and to family and having patient and family-centered shared decision-making, a comprehensive process that avoids targeted screening, a strengths-based focus, and linking to community partnerships. So we know that race is a social construct based on a 
social classification based on phenotype. At the same time, we often collect data about race without thinking about why. Why are we measuring race? Are we hoping to capture culture, genetics, social class? What is it we're looking for? Again, continuing with this concept of structural integrity, if we have a three-step process, decide if you will or will not collect data about race and state why or why not. Define how you will collect race and what is the reason. What's the hypothesis you're testing? Describe and be explicit about how you'll try to understand race-associated differences and attempt to measure racism, structural, institutional, interpersonal, and internalized racism. Bringing more structural integrity to our process, we don't wanna simply report race-related findings. We wanna explicitly state our hypothesis, be clear about the limitations and implications of our decision. Propose future studies if your study is unable to explicate these differences. Um, develop equitable partnerships with communities to help design um, the research. So I'd like to just spend a moment talking about what we mean by community partnership. So the National Academies of Science says a community-based solution is an action policy program or law driven by community members that affects local factors and can influence health, can advance health equity. When addressing social determinants of health, we often target the most important um, we often forget the most important and abundant resource, people. So our work with Vital Village is a network of residents, agencies that are striving to maximize child's family and community well-being. We focus on community engagement and building the capacity of institutions to collaborate more effectively to enhance community resources, the, engage, the ability for citizens to participate and have enhanced social networks that ultimately increases protective factors to mitigate and prevent adversities and improve well-being. Adverse childhood experiences cost the United States $548 billion annually. It's $220 million a day, over $4,000 per family each day. So when we think about the abundance of opportunities in the community, we ask the question, what would it look like for every child, irrespective of background and circumstance, to have the opportunity to thrive in a healthy community? Dr. Dworkin said, we cannot address critical needs unless we know what the community priorities are. And investing the time in truly developing community leaders, connecting community institutions is fundamental to the work we do and really begins with an idea that often with community engagement, we're focusing on the external part of this, this the purple circle, the external purple circle. We need to spend more time looking at the internal green circle, power, trust, relationships, history and healing. So when we work in partnership, we lead by listening. We work to catalyze collaborations. We foster cross-sective and collective actions to promote equity. We curate and share data to promote alignment. We focus on a co-creation model that's mutually beneficial and equitable to community partners and academic partners, and we focus on shared decision-making and transparent governance structures that create co-ownership and credit. 
Dr. Dorkin said the outcomes we seek for children's optimal health development and well-being are disproportionately influenced by the social environment and behavioral factors. And if we're not addressing all of these factors, we will not ultimately be successful in helping children reach their full potential. We need to focus on building community capacity. There are several techniques that we use to do this. First, we begin by reframing narratives. We often begin with a deficit, defining the problem. What if you simply began a partnership with community members by framing the asset, beginning from a place of strength? The truth is we cannot equitably partner with communities that we see as having deficits and having weaknesses. Most of our partnerships are actually formed in an equitable way around a shared appreciation of strengths, wisdom, and resources. So framing the assets is actually vital to equity in partnerships. We use a model called the 90-day challenge, which is, focuses on co-designing, creating equitable partnerships, and creating a continuous learning and iterative improvement model. This is really taking uh, quality improvement strategies and community-based participatory research and putting them together so that we can make decisions um, in an equitable way, as well as focus on learning from and improving over time. We have a service learning and leadership model that begins with a solution finding approach. Whenever we approach community for partnership, we look to see the existing solutions. We use a trauma-informed framework and our understanding of early childhood adversities to promote alignment across sectors. We curate and share data and we focus on continuous learning. So these are, and the foundation of our model is a service learning and leadership model that recognizes and appreciates existing community leadership. We work to co-design additional leadership opportunities, civic engagement and service commitments, strategic alliances to leverage resources and ongoing mentorship. Shared data is critical. And I don't have time to go through, but our data dashboard is publicly available. And all of these data maps were created in partnership with community members, with research questions that they wanted asked. So for example, we have um, obviously with our opioid crisis, we've had a lot of parental advocacy around needles that have been left on playgrounds and in parking lots. So community members requested data that they could use for their advocacy efforts. And we use 311 data to map the distribution of needle pickup requests. Um, I won't share these additional maps um, today. Um, we've taken our local work in Boston, now nationally, and we've partnered with many coalitions very similar to ours across the country. We've learned from each other. So this is very much a peer community learning model. Um, solutions are always designed with community input and any effort to reduce inequities and increase access to opportunities um, is the goal. Uh, more than one leader at the state level can be helping to make shifts in policy and practice, but also intimately connected to local community leadership. So we value community wisdom, we build capacity, um, and then we focus on shifting mindsets through shared data and actions. So 
The ripple effects of this is that a lot of the work of really building capacity to use equity-informed and trauma-informed frameworks has an impact on the language that's being used to describe work, the stories that community members are telling with their data and sharing with policymakers. It redefines decision-making processes within coalitions and ultimately has a greater community impact. We often redefine our maps so that we're focusing on strengths-based indicators, like the number of licensed child care locations, the number of high school graduates, instead of the number of folks who have dropped out. <laughs> Putting it all together, we really go from a prevention model to a resilience building model. Changing mindsets is a lean, efficient, but a tireless and continuous effort. Finding abundance in community partnerships is scalable and transforming communities through um, community capacity building that is transformative. I wanna take us again to where we started thinking about what do we do to honor the dignity of every child? Dignity is formed by not just how you value yourself, but how your community values you. So that's how dignity differs from respect. Dignity is uh, something that's innate to each human being, but it also is understood through a network of individual, interpersonal, institutional, and organizational relationships. No one can be authentically human while he prevents others from being so. So our dignity is inextricably bound with each other. So a lot of times we talk about equity and I actually think we need to center on dignity. If we center on the dignity of individuals, particularly children of groups and of communities, what might we be able to achieve around equity together? Thank you so much for your time and this opportunity to speak with you all this morning. Thank you so much for a truly, truly remarkable presentation. Uh, we have over 260 people that have joined for this meeting, and uh, certainly uh, the, your presence uh, brought all of them to us, and, and, and I think it, it was incredibly well received. We do have some questions, which I'll go ahead and ask, and, and then we'll also pass it on to Paul to ask additional questions. So the first one is, uh, thank you for me mentioning screening for both risk and that social determinants of health and strengths, how, with what screening tool are you able to do both? What tool would you suggest for pediatricians to use? That's an excellent question. I actually think um, I am a, uh, I am a big question person. So when screening for risks, I actually um, um, uh, ask families um, to define for themselves an event that has been, um, if there are any events that have happened since the last time I've seen them that have been particularly distressing um, um, or um, uh, concerning to them or to their child. So I think sometimes families will define something as a traumatic experience or a stressful experience that I wouldn't think of or wouldn't be included on my screening tool. I do the exact same thing when thinking about strengths. Um, tell me a little bit about something you're proud of about yourself, your family, your child, yourself as a caregiver, um, your community. Um, so really trying to develop a relationship around understanding how people are defining strengths, assets, and resources. And those are often critical to any intervention that will be done um, in collaboration with the family, really building on strengths. 
Thank you. Uh, a question from one of our pediatricians, uh, which is really, I think, uh, an important one. Uh, says, wonderful, eloquent talk. I am curious about how you recommend that we inject more humanism into medical training and practice and keep it going. Some of the barriers that are out there are the facts that most physicians are coming from a science-oriented as opposed to a social science-oriented education, and that reimbursement systems are way to the traditional curative activity, not population health or social justice at this time. So that, that's the question from Dr. Scherzer, one of our pediatricians. One of the things that um, we've started doing is um, uh, I think uh, the concept of equity, and as we talk about equity a lot, um, there can be a bit of numbness to the concept of equity and the idea of achieving or advancing equity. Um, so I've started talking more about dignity, and we usually begin those conversations in small groups where people can think about a personal experience of indignity. So um, allowing people to really begin with uh, when and how they've experienced an indignity and what has contributed to cycles of indignity um, for them in their, in their social world is uh, I found to be a really important starting point for understanding our shared humanity. Uh, even with uh, exposure, uh, our understanding of adverse childhood experiences being very com and common and a range of social adversities being very common, we can still have a lot of othering in that providers um, and care providers may see themselves as and their experiences, even if they had adversities, as very different from those of their patients. That is a process of othering and disconnecting, which is actually kind of very fundamental to a lot of our race conscious society, that othering process. So um, by thinking about dignity and thinking about how dignity is created in relationship, I think that really taps into our shared humanity and helps to break down uh, some of the othering and helps us to embrace our differences. Thank you. Um, another comment, thank you very much for this wonderful talk from Stacey Chadna, who leads her Office of Human Research Protection. Can you speak to the impact of the pandemic on building and sustaining those essential community partnerships? I think um, the pandemic has been humbling for all of us, and it's been a difficult time, um, uh, to say the least. Uh, what has been remarkable has been um, that despite numerous challenges, there has been incredibly strong community leadership demonstrated, um, incredibly uh, powerful degrees of community resilience. And we now have an opportunity to not just call a community a resilient community, but to actually follow the lead of that community leadership, to get behind it, to support it, to nurture it, so that there can be greater degrees of community determination and leadership around the design of early childhood systems of care and education, around the design of local food systems and infrastructures. Um, I think the biggest challenge is really addressing power dynamics really being honest about the power dynamics that might feel threatened or uncomfortable with the idea of greater degrees of community leadership. Thank you very much. Uh, from Danielle Warren-Diaz, uh, who uh, is, directs our HIV program. And Danielle asks, uh, I agree many times individuals come into black communities to work on deficits instead of building up on strengths. What type of actions can we take as 
black change agents to change this type of narrative? This is, um, all of these questions have been so important. And I, I think there's several levels of response here. One, a lot of the work that happens is in communities is being funded. So we do have to work with the funders to change the requirements and conditions of funding. Does there, is, does there need to be participatory budgeting with community partners? Do there need to have been some degree of community buy-in or contribution or co-design of the plan that's gonna be released? Um, we um, have had um, lots of, of research that um, has been, had a predominant worldview informing the hypotheses, testing, and models um, from a dominant group that differs from the group on which most of the research is being conducted. And we know our worldview shapes our theoretical models and hypotheses that we would test. How could we ever possibly achieve equity without including a broader diversity of worldviews, a broader diversity of ideas? So I think we need to move to an airport control tower model that before the plane can take off, before a research project, a program, or an intervention could be implemented or started, what is the checklist for equity? And that's part of this idea of structural integrity. What are the minimum requirements where there needs to be explicit conversations and transparency before we can move forward? I think we are at a point in time where we have some shared agreements about some of these requirements. Um, and I think we need to begin to start thinking about this as an ethical responsibility. And I'll use the example of the use of race in much of our medical literature and research. We all keep saying, well, race is a social construct and it's not biological. And then you just control for it in your model. And there is no requirement to talk about what's not measured. There's no requirement to confirm that uh, we are not assuming that race is a biological construct. We have, to, we have to stop and we can see journals are now, editorial boards are now starting to bend and to change around the requirements um, for how race will be included in research and described. So I think that there is an opportunity. A clear answer. Uh, Paul, I'm going to pass it on to you for the final comments and then we'll finish the session. It's almost nine o'clock. Paul? Uh, thanks very much, Juan. I was trying to start my video, but apparently I cannot do that. So uh, not to take any more time. First, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to offer a moment or two of reflection. R Renee, thank you so much for really exceeding our extremely lofty uh, expectations. I just want to make three very quick points. Number one, this Grand Rounds has really reinforced how much Renee has taught us over the years and continues to teach us. And I'll give you a couple of very specific examples. We are in the final stages of a frantic effort in partnership with the city to submit a promised neighborhoods grant for the city of Hartford and the Hartford Public Schools. It's due this Friday. Uh, this has been a mammoth undertaking. And as I listened to Renee speak, I realized her impact on what we have done in which we've called out the importance of structures, institutions, and systems, in which we've emphasized the critical need to place inequities and 
poor outcomes in the proper context, addressing root causes, social and structural conditions, building out social support networks, ensuring community engagement, advancing access to resources and information and being strength-based. Renee has taught us this. Number two, yesterday, we were asked to meet with a legislator who has incorporated screening for adverse childhood experiences within a bill that was brought, is being brought before the uh, Children's Committee. We uh, encouraged the legislator and actually submitted testimony that would place collecting this data in the proper context as Renee explained. And in fact, Kimberly Martini Carvel, who co-authored the testimony with me, texted me and said, can't we just submit Renee's grand rounds rather than submit our own testimony? That would be far more impactful. And third, we have been in engaged for a number of years in place-based initiatives in the south end of Hartford, Sina, in North Hartford, through the North Hartford AAAM Collaborative. The vital village theory of change is driving and informing our work. And the notion that sharing data is at the center is crucial to our work. Renee has taught us that. Second point, I, I knew there would be many teachable moments we need to think about dignity and how that informs our efforts to achieve equity. Thank you, Renee. And then third, I'm hopeful. Uh, I realize we are not supposed to get political, but I couldn't help think in listening to Renee's talk how I'm hopeful of a grassroots movement. And this has a ring to it. RBJ for Surgeon General. You heard it here first, but that that would be uh, extraordinary. So if we have time for one last question, um, uh, Renee, you talked about the importance of data and the importance about measuring outcomes. How do we champion outcomes that focus on such critical issues as hope and happiness, which are so depleted among children, uh, particularly living within uh, such harsh uh, social and environmental circumstances. And again, thank you. I think um, that I appreciate this question. I'll answer it with a story. We were doing work with fathers of color around mental well-being. Fathers of color are often um, invisible in our society and their mental health and well-being in the prenatal period, in the postpartum period, or throughout childhood is not considered. And when we if you think about it, um, if you had an adverse experience as a child and you're uh, an adult man, uh, preparation for your firstborn child could be a, a very big trigger of a difficult parent relationship. But we have no public health systems in place that really support their success. When designing that project, we did a participatory project and we worked with men in the community and they wrote, authored the first question for the survey. What makes you great? So I'll never forget that. It's not, a, it's not a question that I was taught in graduate school. It's not a question that we commonly see on exams, but I can tell you the response rate to that survey was a lot higher. And the information we learned from the question of what makes you great was 
fundamental to designing with and in partnership with the community, um, what uh, uh, opportunities to promote mental well-being looked like. So I think that um, they also, this group that you mentioned, Hope, in, wanted to include measures of hope, um, particularly around um, police community relations. And one of the things that they hoped to change over time was to see increasing hope around uh, relationships between police and law, uh, law enforcement and community. So I think that it is, it, is, um, uh, it is just a matter of listening to the community because it's the right thing to do. None of us want to only be seen as a sum of our challenges. All of us want to be seen for our strengths as well. Thank well, you so thank much. You. Thank you very much uh, to, to both of you, uh, Dr. Boyd and Jared. Uh, I, I like the, the sound of uh, RBG for Surgeon General. I think that would be good. Uh, I think the PW may fit in there as well somewhere. So thank you again, everyone, for joining us. Great participation, great questions. And we'll end with great dignity here. This is a word that I will continue to use. I appreciate everyone joining. Please be safe. We'll see you again on Friday for the Ask the Experts and then next Tuesday for Grand Rounds again. Bye-bye.